Thank you for listening to the Divine Nobodies Podcast with Eric Ajna and Jennifer Lynn. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe so you never miss a show. If you're on Instagram, please follow us at Divine Nobodies Podcast and join our ever-growing community of lightworkers and spiritual visionaries. Together, we can raise the frequency of our planet and bring in a new era of awakening and understanding. Welcome to our tribe. And now your hosts, Eric Ajna and Jennifer Lynn. If we're tuning in Divine Nobodies Podcast, how you doing, Jen? You know, I've got some allergies today, but I'm doing all right. How are you? You got the allergies? Yeah, yeah. I'm allergic to our cats. <laughs> oh, I thought you were I thought you were tearing up because you were happy to see me. That too. <laughs> it's been crazy. Yeah. You know what? It's been raining here nonstop um, down here in uh, LA. And it was super, super windy the other day too. It felt like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz is expecting to see some cows or some pigs just fly by. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it was really windy here too. It blew all of the leaves off the trees in our backyard. So our That's, whole backyard is just like a blanket of leaves. It's so romantic when you say it like that. It sounds like poetry, Jen. Oh, it's so beautiful too because the trees actually change colors here. So really? it's like yellow and orange leaves and then the dogs will go out there and play in it. It's really cute. It's really beautiful when like the clouds set in and it blocks the sun just to, just the right amount to where it brings out the colors, especially with uh, the water and then the rainfall. Yeah. I tend to get a little bit more introspective when it comes to rain is the reason why in the tarot they equate water to emotions. Yeah. It's crazy how nature has this way of moderating um, certain emotions or encourages us to go more inwards. And I feel like rain does that for me. Whenever it rains, I find myself being a little bit more introspective about life. I start thinking about memories about people I haven't thought about for a long time. And uh, yeah. it becomes like a nice, and it's like you can't, it's not like you're going to be able to go outside and run around. I mean, unless you're one of those people that likes to run around in the rain. More often than not, I think when people think of rain, they think of staying inside, watching a movie, doing a little cuddle sesh, drinking some tea, you know? Do you remember that song, Blame It on the Rain? Millie Vanilli? Oh, is that like a min, min, Millie Vanilli? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh my God, don't even get me started with those guys. I mean, that was during my time, you know, I don't I think for younger audiences, they may not get it, but there was a lot of controversy with those two a while back. Yeah, but yes, I remember. Know, I remember. Yeah, because they were lip syncing during their concerts and now every single artist lip syncs during their concerts. I don't entirely agree with that because there are artists that sing to a click track nowadays. Yeah. They were straight up lip singing like 100% of the time. They didn't even originally create the original songs. Oh, they didn't. Oh, no, I thought it was somebody it was else. Just- Oh, it was some 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 other uh, producers and and uh, that were seeing that in the studio, and they never ever got to touch any of that. Kind of like I don't know if you remember this, but L. Cool J when he put out that um, that song, doing it. Um, I don't know. I the- never used to listen to that type of music. Oh, well, I only remember it because it was from my childhood. Yeah, well, there's Alyssa. controversy around it. So the in the video was a really like beautiful, sexy girl. But the um, woman who was actually singing it was like a plus size, you know, big, beautiful woman, curvy lady. And um, they didn't use her because of that. They wanted to use like a model. So there was yeah. a lot of, there was a kerfuffle over that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You have a wild animal on your back, Jen. I know, she just jumped on my shoulder. <laughs> Oh my gosh, you got a bunch of cats just walking all over your microphones right now. You know what? They're probably getting crazy because of the rain happening and the storms happening outside as well. But it feels good. It feels good to be inside during this time, especially during the winter where it's nice and toasty Mm -hmm. and drinking some tea and just doing a podcast with you. This is a nice, nice vibes. Yeah, I got got a new mug, so I don't have my roach mug today. (laughs) You don't have a roach mug. It looks like a third (laughs) eye. It looks like something more more aligned with new and evolved. 
Jennifer. Yeah, growing up. Yeah, it's nice and big. That's a huge cup too. That's one of those cups that like you walk with on the way to the living room in the morning and then you stand in front of your blinds and you just open up the blinds with one just quick swoop and then you just walk out into your balcony and on your patio with that cup in your hand. But you're not holding it by just one hand, Jen. You're holding it by two. And then you hold it really, really slowly up to your mouth while the steam just sort of rolls off the top. You just take a little sip and then you think about life. You know what I mean? Yeah, you got to squint your eyes too when you yeah, think yeah. about life and nod <laughs> you gotta, your head. You got you to squint your eyes. And then it's just sort of then you walk back inside and you have your little free people flowy bohemian dress on. And then you get the day started, you know? I like it. That's a nice visual. Yeah. yeah everybody <laughs> needs a, a cup of tea. A cup that holds the tea as extravagant as the one that you're holding right now. Yeah, thanks. And speaking of extravagant, thank you everybody for tuning in. Appreciate your energy. Today we're going we're gonna to dive deep into a teacher that has inspired my life in lots of ways. I know it has for you as well, Jen. He's one of my favorite teachers of all time. Mine too. Mr. Alan Watts. And there's lots of different reasons why I appreciate Alan Watts. One of those being that he was, uh, back during the 50s and the 60s, even in the 70s, they were disseminating information from the East. The difficulty that I think a lot of people in the West had was trying to interpret Eastern spiritual practices in such a way that we can understand them. And Alan Watts did a fantastic job of doing this because although specifically he was uh, worked within the realm of Zen Buddhism and the Tao, and he was one of the only people during that time that brought these really, really simple teachings, but he was able to explain it in such a way that it resonated with the West. And he has such a smooth voice. He does. He's and I have an impression voice. of Alan Watts. Oh, you and, do? Uh, you have to do it. I will. I will do it in a little bit. I've listened to so many talks. I don't have the best impression, but there are certain nuances in the way he speaks that I kind of tend to catch. And His uh, pauses I, are so perfect. Oh, they perfect, are. You know what? I, timed. I, I've said this in many conversations in the past. At the end of my life, when I'm doing my life review, and I'm pretty much like at the precipice of this life and the next, everybody always expects to see some some guide maybe somebody from their family, which I want to see all of those people at the end of my life. But if there's a comforting fellow or a warm type of energy that I'd want to surround myself with as I venture into the other side, I'd always hope that Alan Watts would show up. And I think that's Hand in hand with Jesus. Hand in hand, or maybe Alan Watts is Jesus incarnated. You know, he was just he was just so cool. And and many people may know this, at least by now, but Alan Watts was actually mentioned in the movie Her. You remember the movie Her? With Joaquin Phoenix? Where he was yeah. basically having a loving Love relationship with, with an yeah, yeah. with an mm-hmm. artificially intelligent sort of character. So Alan Watts was in that movie, and he was? I, yeah, he was. His voice was in the movie. Oh, which is really interesting because you would have never thought. I, it took me completely by, by surprise when um, I saw the movie. So the, the whole basis between her is like this guy creates this relationship with an an AI, this AI operating system that eventually, spoiler alert, I think we're past that point because this was out, came out a few years ago. It's an old movie, yeah. The AI becomes conscious and aware of itself. And it does this through a series of, I guess, machine learning type of programs. It's being constantly developed. And Alan Watts comes into the movie as this AI's teacher. I don't know who did his voice, but they had somebody that did sort of like an impression of Alan yes. Watts. Yes. Oh you my that? gosh, I remember now. Yes, yes. I was like, Alan, I don't remember Alan Watts' voice in that movie. But yes, yeah. I remember now. Okay. Yeah, you didn't actually see him, but you you heard him. And so this kind of gives you an idea of how, even though he's been passed away for quite some time, he's sort of permeated the Western landscape 
when it comes to spirituality, self-help, and just different areas like that. So his message definitely resonates through time, and mainly because it is a timeless sort of teaching. Uh, One of the first books that I read from him was his book called The Wisdom of Insecurity. He's written over 25 books, and if you've had the privilege of reading his books, he talks a lot about Zen Buddhism and the Tao. So just a little bit about Alan Watts. So he grew up Well, he was basically an Episcopal priest from a small village in Southeast England. He wasn't necessarily an academic, although he was very, very intelligent. Academic in the sense that he wasn't a certified in any sort of specific field. Gave up an opportunity to go to Oxford, which, of course, is a very prolific type of school. He was named presumptuous and capricious in terms of his writing style, and he tended to clash with figures of authority. He was Mm. a... Very remarkable teacher from the 50s and the 60s. Whenever people used to ask him what he was, he kind of refrained from calling himself anything. I think uh, I heard him say once before that he considered himself a spiritual entertainer. A spiritual entertainer, I like that. Yeah. It also speaks to like this idea that he didn't really take himself too seriously. If you guys have seen him on video, he used to smoke cigars. I wouldn't say battled with an addiction, but he had trouble with alcohol. He liked to drink. I like to drink. Yeah, exactly. And... (laughs) Yeah, I read some quotes today about um, when I was looking for quotes about alcoholism, because I guess it was it in this book you're speaking of that he talks about that. No, about his alcohol. No, No, I think the only way that you really hear it is just by hearing about who he was from other people that have known him. He so he he liked to smoke. He liked to drink every one once in a while. He actually left the church due to an extramarital affair that he had. So he had sort of questionable relationships. Wow. For being the guru of like love and life to have, to be an alcoholic and have an affair, I'm kind of shocked. I'm not. And this is the reason why is I feel like this speaks to more of his type of spirituality than we think because he was human and he never ever steered away from the fact that he was human. His whole perspective when it came to his Zen Buddhism was enjoying life. He didn't take himself too seriously. He was somebody just like me and you that were on the path, we're trying to do the work, developing different ways of becoming more aware. But that doesn't mean that we're not human. Just like yeah. you said, you like to drink. We all have our own sort of vices. So that's the one thing that I love about Alan Watts is that he didn't create division between who he was and who other people were. So I, like I can that. relate to that. I can relate yeah. to the fact that he was human. Yeah. So his essential message was to just enjoy life and to integrate the spiritual with the material. So the reason why we bring this up, and we're not going to get too much into Alan Watts because this isn't a biography about him, but me and Jen, I feel like, have recognized the impact that he's made on our lives. So we wanted to dedicate a podcast to him, highlighting, this is say about 10 of our favorite quotes and teachings from Alan Watts and see if we could extract some wisdom from them that we could share and also just have a conversation about because it's good shit. Yeah, it is. It's good shit. You want me to go first or do you want to kick it off? Oh, you got to go. You just still go ahead and start with you, Jen. Let's just All go right. ahead and start with you. It's, you know, I'm, I'm thin crust pizza, your deep dish. So <laughs> my, my quotes are not going to be as beefy as yours. I can, I can tell you that right now. If it's an Alan Watts quote, it doesn't matter how long or how subtle it is. It's always going to be beefy <laughs> or vegan true. beefy. Yeah, vegan beefy. Okay. Um, So muddy water is best cleared by leaving it alone. So uh, this to me just talks about being still, right? And it kind of reminds me a little of meditation. It's like when things are really crazy and it's hard to see the light of a situation or see the other side of a situation, the best thing to do is just let it be and let the universe work it out. I've actually heard him 
say that exact quote in one of his lectures, which is about um, the context in which he was speaking was exactly what you're talking about in meditation. The one common human error that we tend to experience in meditation is that we have to do something about the thoughts that we think. Because it seems to us like the objective is to find a certain place of stillness. And when we try and find that place of stillness in meditation, naturally the ego says, okay, well, there are thoughts here that I should do something about. Mm -hmm. And what he was saying in that quote is to not try and silence those thoughts. Because trying to silence those thoughts would be the exact same thing as trying to touch smooth water with a flat iron. It just stirs it up. So the best way, according to him, is to leave the mind alone and that the mind will quiet itself. Yeah, that's one of my favorite quotes. That's one of my favorite quotes of his. I think that's a pretty common one. Um, That's one I've heard before and I've seen on like, on the internet, you know, people copying his stuff and posting memes, you know. Can you say that quote one more time? Muddy water is best cleared by leaving it alone. And this kind of speaks to a lot of Zen. We're going to get into a lot of this stuff. If you if you really pay attention to the spiritual underpinning behind a lot of things that Alan Watts says, it really points to what they te- what they teach in, in in Zen Buddhism, which is recognizing the division in life and finding sort of like a middle way, uh, allowing things to kind of be without imposing too much of yourself into certain situations. Because when we impose too much through maybe things like ego or thoughts, we tend to fuck things up. So that's a, that's a really, really good quote. So I have a few of them here. I've categorized them, Jen, because he has so many. I, I, I had to like kind of refrain myself from uh, not taking too much because there's a lot of information here. But I tried to find the best ones that resonated with me in the moment that I happened to be in. I didn't overthink it. I didn't let my ego come in and overthink it. I just was like, okay, this feels right. I'm adding this one, right? All right, let's hear it. All right. So the first one that I have is about the nature of reality. I'm going to try and do it in Alan Watts, my Alan Watts voice, Jen. Okay. And he always starts with, and this is this is the one this this is the one I, I'm probably going to be really bad at it. So okay, one can only attempt a rational, descriptive philosophy of the universe on the assumption that one is totally separate from it. <laughs> that was think? actually pretty good. It was, was pretty good. And I didn't hate if, it, but I I was really distracted by the accent, so I didn't hear what you actually said. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna do it over a second time. I just wanted you to get okay. a feel. Yeah, my Ellen Watts impression always starts with so then. Because that's, that's how he, he starts some of his talks. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, serious. Serious sauce. It says, one can only attempt a rational, descriptive philosophy of the universe on the assumption that one is totally separate from it. But if you and your thoughts are a part of this universe, you cannot stand outside of them to describe them. This is why all philosophical and theological systems must ultimately fall apart. Two, no reality, you cannot stand outside it and define it. You must enter into it and be it and feel it. And this is a really beautiful quote because he's not making a distinction between you and nature. He's saying that you are a part of nature. Sort of like this natural inclination that lots of people have when it comes to this inquiry of trying to figure out what the meaning of life is, as if somehow you're looking from the outside into life. But if you're a part of nature, you're not separate from it. So in order to give like a really educated guess as to what the meaning of all of this is, you can't really do it. You can't do it unless you are somehow entirely separate from it. So you can't define it, right? So understanding life means to participate in the meaning. It is this sort of movement. That quote was actually from The Wisdom of Insecurity, which is one of my favorite books. This speaks to Zen, Zen Buddhism. So Zen teaches us to reconnect with our true selves. Uh, when we say true selves, they don't mean our hopes and our aspirations as an influencer. It doesn't mean our true selves being any specific type of profession, our true selves being the sort of most natural 
aspect of who we are that we all have in common that makes us all relatable and all the same. The, the true self that is connected to the universe. And this is where all happiness is cultivated once we operate from this realm, which is getting basic back to the basics of who we are, the simplicity of being human. Then to operate from that realm, we can easily participate in life and be just sort of naturally creative and flow with the movement of everything around us. You know, stop seeing yourself as separate from nature. We are nature. We see the spiritual life as something to sort of peek our heads into. But the truth is we've never escaped the spiritual life. We've only convinced ourselves that we aren't spiritual through our ideas somehow, that we aren't spiritual enough. You know, we can thank Western Christianity for that, making us feel as if somehow we're not good enough to be spiritual when we never actually stopped being spiritual. Right. You know, we never ever stopped. We're made of the same elements we find in nature. We are fueled by the same elements that we find in nature. So everything has this sort of depth and this sort of resonance and this movement, and we're very much a part of that. And we get this impression that we are when we are in nature amongst the beauty of the trees and just feeling all of the senses of how it feels in our body. It just naturally brings us into this place of cohesion with everything around us. And all of a sudden, like you feel like you're a part of everything. You feel the magnificence of it. So he's basically saying to know reality, you cannot stand outside of it and define it. You must enter into it. So if you want to understand the nature of reality, you got to participate. You, you can't watch it from a distance, because anything that watches from a distance is just ego resisting its own divinity. So if you guys ever have ever posed the question in your mind, what is the nature of reality? What's the meaning of all of this? Well, you have to really ask yourself, who's asking the question? Because you're asking that question from the assumption that you aren't a part of that. Yeah. He has another quote. Um, it's not on my list, but it has something kind of to do with that about walking out into the forest and spend some time there. And then you'll realize that you are part of nature. And oh, yeah. I find that to be really true anytime I, I find like walking in the forest or in the desert or just being out in nature really is recharging. Like it really is healing and cleansing to take in all that wisdom from the trees and the plants and the animals and the smells, and yeah. just the environment. And you were just in Sedona recently. Did you get yeah. to experience a little bit of that over there? Yeah, I did. Sedona is such a healing place. It's so lovely. I still haven't I, gone over there. I can't believe you haven't been. You would love it. Oh my Do you gosh. feel the energy vortex there. over there? Oh yeah. I well the technically the whole place is a vortex, but yeah. there's like you can go to the crystal shops and they'll give you maps of the energy vortexes, like where the energy is super strong. And you yeah. can do hikes in certain areas. And um actually uh Allie and I went uh, maybe like six years ago for I a little that. trip of mine. Yeah. I remember. And um we did we got one of those vortex maps and hiked to like three different vortexes and meditated out there. Didn't you fun. go there shortly after we went to Lightning in a bottle together or yeah. before that? That was around yeah. that time, right? Yeah. I actually have been to Sedona um, almost every year for Thanksgiving because um, our families don't live here. So, I mean, it's really expensive to fly home to Texas. So we do usually just go to Sedona for the weekend since we have like a three-day weekend. I'm curious because I've always wanted to go um, down to that area and just sort of bask in the ambience of the vortex that apparently is there. Mm -hmm. I felt something similar at Mount Shasta. I can only equate it to what people experience at Mount Shasta. I got, I thought I had a plan until I went there and the vortex just took me over. You know, that reminds me of that quote by Mike Tyson. That's like, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. <laughs> that's right? so true. <laughs> right. And so I went yeah. there and I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to just bask in that. All of the sort of work that I need to do, I'll do it. And this is sort of cohesive order. But right when I went there, the, the vortex just took me over and it had its way with me. And it wasn't at all violent. It just had its own sort of grace and vibration to it. And uh, it took me some time to get acclimated to how high of a frequency it was. But once I was there, all of these things started pouring out of me in terms of 
you know, things I needed to let go and things I needed to heal. And when I came back from Mount Shasta, I felt so much lighter. I can only imagine that's what Sedona is like. Yeah, it's. I've never been to Mount Shasta, so I can't compare. That that is a lot what it feels like. Yeah. I mean, you just feel so uh, light and clean and free while you're there. It's not something that you take away with you. It's like being there in that energy. It just feels so good. I mean, I'm sure it helps that it looks like a completely different planet. It does. When you're seeing like the rock formations and everything. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Super trippy. All right. What else you got, Jen? All right. So the second one, this is another, um, thin crust quote. So this one, um, actually this is, I'm going to do two quotes in one. One is Alan Watts and another one is from the alchemist, which is one of my favorite books. Yeah. So, um, one of the quotes from the alchemist is, one is loved because one is loved. No reason is needed for loving. Yeah. And uh, I love that quote. That was my favorite one. That was actually, I put that quote on my meditation app uh, profile. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is the Alan Watts quote that is um, pretty similar to that. So um, never pretend to love which you do not feel for love is not ours to command. I really like that one too. Yeah, so they're similar. They're not the same, but they're, um, they say different things, but um both about letting go and not trying to control love, just being love and giving love and receiving love and basking in that high vibration, high vibration. It kind of makes a distinction between what is a sort of conceptual love and what Mm -hmm. is actually love that's moderated by nature. Mm -hmm. Right. We think that we have a lot of concepts when it comes to love. When people think of love, like if you pose a question to somebody and you ask them, what is it that you love? More often than not, some people will give you a sort of long laundry list of things that they love, their partner, their family, things like that. While you may love the, you may love them, a lot of those ideas are driven by concepts that we have of what we believe it means to be loving. But I think what Alan Watts is speaking to in terms of his Zen Buddhism and his Tao practice is that when we give up all of these concepts of what we think it means to be loving, we're still loving. Mm-hmm. And we may not recognize it right away as loving because it's not anything tied to a sort of conceptual framework. But what Alan Watts is talking about is at the very basis of our humanness, we have a compassionate and loving universe. And we can see that just in how everything around us in nature moves. It doesn't matter what you think, your body is still doing a compassionate act every single day by trying to keep you alive. It still chooses to beat. No matter how many anxious thoughts that you have, your body still shows its love to you by helping you stay alive. Like nature is still compassionately giving you the opportunity to, to engage in life by the loving act of allowing you to breathe with oxygen, right? Nature is constantly giving to us. That's a loving act. The sun shines every single day. It gives us vitamins. It gives us the ability to see and move through our universe. That is loving. Our role in that collaboration is that there's this natural sort of cohesion that happens with us when we're integrated with nature where we just are grateful for these simple things. You, nobody needs to teach you that. That is something that you just intrinsically are. So I feel like there's a difference between the love that maybe Alan Watts is talking about and the love that you're talking about where people feel a need to force love onto somebody. And yeah, the first part of this, never pretend to love what you do not feel. True. It's have like you a, ever done that? Have you uh, ever pretended to love someone? I have before in my life. Yes, I have. And of course, this, this uh, happened more so in relationships where you're still trying to figure things out. You're still trying to tap into your, re-tap into your awareness and, and still try and develop everything needed in order to have a healthy relationship. And there are some people that seem so convincing and then you are somehow convinced that they love you when they really don't, mm-hmm. you know, and vice versa. I think we come to this conclusion when it comes to more egoic type of uh, standards that we have for ourselves. We can overlook a lot of things, especially, you know, toxic behavior. And we can kind of convince ourselves that we care about somebody when we really don't. And this sort of like speaks to a disconnect that we have between our mind and our heart. 
Yeah, that's a that's a deep one. Okay. Moving on, we have another one I said it's subtitled, which is Our Ego and Our Mind. This is the category of quotes that I pulled it from, and here we go. It says, we seldom realize, for example, that our most private thoughts and emotions are not actually our own. For we think in terms of languages and images, which we did not invent, but which were given to us by our society, right? That's, it's so funny. I read that. That's a, another really famous one. And I almost put that on my list, but I knew it was going to be on your list. That's why I didn't put it on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because this is like an integral part of my teaching. Right? This is this had Eric written all over it. Is Eric yeah. written all over it? Mm-hmm. It, it, is, it is learning to identify what is real and what isn't through meditation. Mm-hmm. That's really what meditation is. Meditation is, is being radically honest with yourself and being able to distinguish what is intrinsically and authentically real and not real in every given moment. And if we're going to really dissect language, we come to realize that nothing about how we think is inherently original. And if we can realize this, then we can awaken to a much vaster space of potential. Because a lot of what we think is driven by our environment. A lot of what we think and know in terms of language is something that's been taught to us by other people. You know, the curriculum that we go through in school, this is all somebody else's experience, somebody else's version of history that is being imposed on us and we have you know, the obligation when we're young to learn these things, whether we like it or not. And the whole English language in which we use was moderated by probably just a few people over long periods of time. And we've played within this field for so long that we've forgotten that they aren't actually a part of who we are. They're just, I guess, society's easiest way that we can somehow relate to each other through the use of vibration and tone. But when I think about language, especially if I'm or especially if you're somebody that is prone to anxiety or someone that is prone to racing thoughts. Practice like really looking at the contents of your mind can free you or can kind of bring you into a space of uh, recognition and separation between your ego and your awareness, knowing that most of the stuff inside of your mind, including consistent chatter, it isn't something that came from you. And I also ask myself this question, which is who are we without mind? Because that, that's, that's a natural sort of like think progression that people take. It's like, okay, well, if I completely get rid of all of the conditioning, all of my preferences and concepts and ideas, then who am I without those things? A lot of people will think that you're just going to be some crazy wild animal. That's not true. We are the simple gestures and motions and the sways of a hand. You know, we're basically just like life wanting to explore and be alive. And we've somehow forgotten how beautiful this is. At the very, very core, we are the simple things. We are the ability to eat and listen to the trees and take a walk outside. The very, very core of this, these are things that we tend to kind of take for granted. It reminds me of the last episode that we had. But when we learn to appreciate these small things about who we are, we won't over-identify with the crazy shit that tends to cloud our minds daily. Even if you're not looking for the deeper meaning of that quote, um, it's really relevant today. As time goes on and as technology becomes more popular and news and information is spread around so much faster, um, you realize that nothing is original. Everything is just like recycled over and over and over in different ways. Everything. It is sort of like this reverberation Mm -hmm. of extrasensory information and not even just from the outside world. Like our own minds produce this feedback. Everything that we think we know about other things has to do with something that has already been experienced before. Or it's it's dreaming up some sort of future experience that hasn't even come yet. And uh, we fall asleep to this never-ending stream of, of thought. But when we become more conscious and aware and actually catch ourselves regurgitating this information, then we'll know that a lot of what we think we are is passed down from somebody, something else by somebody oh, yeah. else. 
somebody else's experience. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't use those experiences. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't use that learning. It has obvious benefits to knowing the things that we know. Mm -hmm. I'm just talking about in terms of over-identifying who you are can sometimes be a toxic thing. Use it, not sparingly, but use it wisely. Use your mind in a smart and intelligent way and not allow your thoughts and emotions to dictate everything about your life. Just to go one deeper on that one, I think of think about epigenetics. That is all, you know, emotions that are recycled and passed down. It's totally true. You just think I know I know families that just have just anxiety permeating through their entire family tree. And a lot of them just sort of put their hands up in the air and they're like, I have no idea where this comes from, but it's something that I have. Mm-hmm. You know, and we can go even far back and start thinking about past lives and past trauma and, you know, relatives yeah. that have been in the war. All of that, all of that is recycled. Our soul being recycled, reincarnation, right? Yeah. All of those things. All of all those, those things. things. When when do we stop being our family and when do we stop being our parents? Like we have that running through our veins. And so it's really important to make a distinction between what is real and what is something that had been passed on from somebody else's experience. It's good to have that information as a point of reference, but to over-identify ourselves with our experiences, I think isn't a really a productive thing because it becomes a little bit more difficult to be creative and to learn new things. So yeah, that's a good one. So this one is a little bit more, I like how you organized yours. I should have organized my quotes, but I didn't. I'm kind of all over the place. So this one's about money. Okay. If you say that getting the money is the most important thing, you'll spend your life completely wasting your time. You'll be doing things you don't like doing in order to go on living. That is to go on doing things you don't like doing, which is stupid. I like how he ends it with, which is stupid. Which is stupid. (laughs) He should have just like added like a little bro at the end. Which is stupid. Totally. Bro. Which is stupid. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard him say stupid in a talk. Um, so when I went, read this quote, it made me laugh and I had to put it on. <laughs> to put I've it heard on him the say list. stupid a few times. <laughs> yeah. no. He was yeah. one of those people that was just known for using a lot of like slang from the 60s, you know, mm-hmm. just like Ram Das was. So I think that's the reason why he resonated with a lot of the younger audiences because he'd always say things like, oh, that's far out and, you know, <laughs> use that sort of hippie slang. Yeah. When Alan Watts said stupid, he really means it. You know what I mean? <laughs> For sure. It reminds but me of like, like a talk that he, uh, I heard a while back where he's like, we're on this sort of never-ending, tireless journey of chasing after a certain idea of happiness in life. We spend a great deal of our time preparing for something, not entirely knowing exactly when the destination is going to present itself to us, mm-hmm. Right get into this habit of almost like this this form of insecurity. And he talks a lot about this in the book, The Wisdom of Insecurity, which is there's this distrust that we have for life where we always feel like we have to constantly either be saving for a life that maybe in the future may come at some point. You'll, you'll find that 30, 40 years into the future when you're finally maybe 70 or 80 years old and you have all of this wealth saved up and you can't do anything with it because you're old. Yeah. <laughs> so his point is exactly. like living in the now, you know right. what I mean? And being present, right? You know, people make plans. And um, so they're always living in the future, right? Like waiting for these plans to happen, whether it's a vacation or meeting up with someone or whatever. So then when those plans finally come to fruition, you know, when do you have that sensation that you finally arrived? Like you're always living. Yeah, it never happens. You're always living for the next moment, living for the next plan. And maybe one can say like, okay, well, at least it gives me security. At least it makes me secure knowing that I'm taken care of. But I wouldn't say that that's true, true happiness because I know a lot of people that on the surface, materialistically, they feel secure, but inside they're just struggling 
They have all of this anxiety. They have all of this stress from trying to maintain the sense of control over their life through things like finances. I've, str- I, I've dealt with this in the past too. At what point do you find balance or cohesion and integration with life? What, what's worth more, like your peace or maintaining some level of control over life by accumulating all of this wealth? You know, eventually as you get older, not being able to do anything with it. You know, I, I've always just been one of you. Maybe this is just because I'm a millennial. I've always been to more into experiences more so than material things, you know, and that may have something to do with my upbringing and not having much. But for me, being able to experience life and always having that memory with me, that's being archived in my life review that I'm going to see at the end of my life. And I like to think of life as, you know, I'm, I'm creating the most beautiful music video that I possibly can to watch at the very end of my life. That's how I want to see it. Like, yeah. And that's going to be filled with experiences. And at the end of my life, I don't want to remember myself being, oh, this person that was just chasing after wealth and trying to be something that I'm not. I want to remember myself as being somebody. I want to, I want to remember and, and watch over that life review as I would watch over like one of the most beautiful music videos I can possibly watch from one of my yeah. favorite artists like Hammock or something like that. Yeah, I mean, Alan Watts once again said it best. You'll be doing things you don't like doing in order to go on living. There's so many people that do that. Yeah, I did that for a long time. Oh, yeah. I got a a very good piece of advice from um, a PA that I used to work with. And he's like, you know what you need to figure out? You need to get to a place in life where you own your stuff and your stuff doesn't own you. And I was like, hmm, touche. So I sold my house and everything in it and moved to California. Yeah. Dang. It's like, fuck yeah. it. It takes a whole lot of courage to go go down that route because just like we talked about in a couple, in, in the previous quotes, like we have our own fears and insecurities to battle first, right? It means something to us to hold on to these things. But when we hold on to life so strongly, we suck the very life out of the life that we're trying to live. And I think Alan Watts, this was one of the most integral parts of his teaching, which is that you can't hold on to life because life has changed and life is movement. And the more you try and hold on, the more you get this sort of this sort of rebound, this uh, the, the more anxiety that you feel, mm-hmm. because uh, life is something that is ever changing. To to deny change is almost essentially to deny your your own divinity as well, because our bodies are changing, everything about us is changing. So who do we think we are that we could somehow grab hold to something and expect it to remain the same without destroying ourselves at the same time? So yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, that was a good one. Next one that I have is a little bit. This is this isn't even this isn't even deep dish. This is fucking Chicago style pizza right here. <laughs> right, you're gonna, right. You're gonna need a fork and a knife for this one, Jen. All right, okay. Right, yeah, <laughs> I'm ready. All right, so this is on living and dying. Oh, so try. Of course, of course. I was waiting for this. I like yeah. how you said it. You're like, of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is try. He says, so then try to imagine what it would be like to go to sleep and never wake up. Now try to imagine what it was like to wake up having never gone to sleep. So I'm going to say it one more time in a more serious tone so you can kind of soak it in. Because this one, when I first heard it, it blew my fucking mind, Jen. I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah. It says, try to imagine what it will be like to go to sleep and never wake up. Now try to imagine what it was like to wake up having never gone to sleep. And this kind of speaks to death and reincarnation and stuff like that. So the mind scares itself with all of these illusions of death. We have dreamed up as human beings every possible fear and scary concept that we can when it comes to death. It's mostly driven by uh, our collective unconscious. It's driven by the sort of uh, traumas that we experience in the outside world. It's driven by fucking movies. It's driven by all of this sort of atrocity that we feel all around us. 
our media tends to formulate things in such a way that provokes fear when it comes to death. And so one thing that we tend to think about, or at least some people do from a nihilist perspective, which is when we die, we're just going to go to sleep and never wake up. But if we look deeply at the idea of going to sleep and never waking up, we come to a really important truth, or at least I did when I contemplated this, which is we cannot have an experience of nothing. We have never experienced nothing before, like ever. The only thing that we have a sort of cognition over is experience. Even when we sleep, we're still experiencing. We never ever stop experiencing. We've only experienced something, a form of suchness. So even if we die, the only thing that can really happen, at least from Alan Watts' perspectives, and this is something that I heard in his talk, is just another experience. It may not be the same life, but it may be a different type of experience somewhere else. He kind of posed it in one of his talks, which is, you know, we all know that when one person dies, a baby is born. Like that's, that's fact. That's something that surrounds us all the time. When one person dies, another baby is born. Two things that are happening, which is someone is seemingly dying, another person is waking up from something. And there's no break in continuity between those two. So you can't have an experience of nothing. You can only have an experience of something because it's, only, it's the only thing that's within our experience to know. I think rebirth allows us to see, especially, I mean, this kind of speaks to reincarnation, right? Is that there's this constant, constant flow of something. Even just when we think of physics, you know, you have the law of conservation of energy, which is that energy can't be created nor destroyed. It's only, cre- it's only transformed into something else. At one point, is electricity created? It isn't. It's in the air. It's flying through the air. And the only thing, and they talk about this in Buddhism, the only thing that happens when you flick a match is that you're creating the conditions to illuminate what's already there, which Mm -hmm. is electricity, which is energy. So Mm -hmm. I like to think of it in terms of like a dial, right? So consciousness is at one station. And when we pass away, or when we die, that dial transitions into another bandwidth or another frequency. And we could just wake up on the couch with a bong in our hand and be like, holy shit, that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I I think about this related to death, like, because once you're dead and your soul is out there, do you remember your death? Because we don't remember our births either. So is it just kind of like a portal that you get sucked through? Like you're sucked out of your life and put into a new body and there's no memory of either? I think the essence of who you are is something that you can take with you. And this is a really, really good question. And I think one definitely to ponder and contemplate. But I think from Alan Watts's perspective is that we could send ourselves down this crazy rabbit hole trying to figure it out. Yeah. And that can, in some ways, take us away from the sort of simplicity and the joys of life. And he's saying, not to worry, to trust Don't life. Yeah. Nature will take care of you. Life will take care of you. You're not going to be annihilated. You're not going to become nothing. So if you live life under the understanding that you're always going to be okay, then you can enjoy everything around you. The closest that we can to understanding life after death are the, you know, people like the David Ditchfields of the world mm-hmm. that experience the the very tip of what that must be like and they're able to come back and explain it. And a lot of at least near death experiences that I've read, you still recall who you are for sure. But I think once you go through that sort of ultimate recycling during the reincarnation process, it's not going to really matter to you as much. I don't think those things will matter to you as much. It's like when you see like the vastness and the divinity of God and like your true nature, mm-hmm. you're going to think that it matters to remember all those little things about you, but you're going to be so preoccupied with being fucking God and always existing that I feel like, yes, you will take in the wisdom of that, but it's not going to be any consequence to you when you decide to reincarnate as something else. 
I don't know. That's a good question. You could remember it. Some people I've read in different lineages, like um, like Swedenborgian type of theology, where it's like you you're you're able to capture different aspects of who you are. But that's a really complex existential question. We can spend our entire lives yeah. trying to figure it out. I mean, it's all about perspective, right? I don't know if you had a hard time in school growing up, and your mom said, "Like, don't worry about this shit." Like anything that's happening in junior high and high school, you know, you're gonna look back on this and not even remember it. And I it's remember true. getting so pissed when my mom would say stuff like that. And I'm like, <laughs> it's true. But I'm upset right now, <laughs> you know, but she was right because, you know, I, I can't even remember the names of people that were important to me when I was in junior high and high school, like a couple here and there, but. <laughs> it's like we think, and, 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 and that's exactly, that's exactly, I think the point when I was a teenager and you have that one woman, that one girl, that one guy that you meet your first love and you swear, it's like this sort of. Romeo and Juliet type of romance. And you're like, mm-hmm. that's the one for me. I'm going to be with her for the rest of my life. Like oh, you will literally in your mind, we'll die for this person. Yeah. Not even realizing that you're in elementary school and you have this entire other life. You're completely discounting the fact that you're going to be growing and changing into a different person. When that teacher told you guys to stop holding hands or when your parents were like, oh, don't take that relationship seriously because you're too young to understand. I got pissed too. Yeah. I was like, how dare you? I yeah. know exactly what I feel. And now I'm like, as I as I progress down my life and I think back, I'm like, man, I had no idea what the fuck I was even thinking. <laughs> no clue. <laughs> Clueless. You know, like we swear. We swear that we know what we want. More often than not, we don't. You can It kind of proves itself in the questions that we ask, especially in terms of spirituality. It's like trying to ask the question of like, what's the meaning all of this? Not realizing that you are the meaning. Like at one point we sort of lost sight with that, but that's a perfect example. Muji, Muji Baba talks a lot about this in some of his talks, which is like, you know, can you remember what you did three weeks ago on a Tuesday at four o'clock? People are like, no, of course not. They're like, well, okay, why why are you telling me about like last Wednesday at five or why are you harping on this trauma that happened to you two years ago? They're, They're exactly the same scenario. The only difference is you've identified a certain aspect of your being with a trauma and you've dismissed another one that you deemed completely trivial. And so that is just a subtle recognition of what is true and what isn't. And that's just how ephemeral thoughts are. We can over-identify with a, a situation and we can completely drop another one. Yeah. And I think the whole point is to like approach each situation in the same way, not, not in a trivial way, but even to allow our traumas and our tragedies to just flow away in the same way that we just allow fleeting thoughts to flow away. Okay. I'm going to do a little backtrack. Okay. Do you remember your first childhood love. Yeah, I do. What was her name? Her name was Candace Duval. Candace Duval. And, and how old are you? Pretty certain she isn't listening to this podcast. What did you ask? How old were you? I was in sixth grade. In sixth grade? I was in sixth grade. This was at Luther Elementary School in Cypress, California, which would oh. be considered Orange County. And she had these red uh, holographic airwalks on, I Ooh. remember. And they were red. I don't know. There was just, I, I couldn't, I, I can't place myself in the shoes of being a six-year-old because I honestly don't even remember what it is that I lacked about her. Mm-hmm. But I just knew that I felt some sort of affinity to her when I was young. Yeah. Right. It was one of those situations where it's like, hey, I met her up by the basketball court after school and we met up just to kiss. And we did. I met up there. I waited for her to come and she came and we kissed and then we ran away. Oh, so cute. We didn't even talk. <laughs> We weren't like, oh, hey, how's your, how's your day doing? How's life? It was just like, okay, we're here. Let's kiss. Chill. Bye. I'm leaving. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. And she used to listen to the Spice Girls. Oh, 
Okay. And I kind of remained true to my, I, I want to say my artisanal sort of cultured taste. Like I, I listened to classic rock, which I think yeah. a lot of um, kids that end up being into what I'm into now, a lot of their journey started in that way. Yeah. Mine did you know? too with classic rock. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my, that was my first love. And you know, that unfortunately ended because she was a, a really popular dame. Oh, okay. But Old yeah. candy. Old candy. Do you remember your first love? I sure do. What was his and name? Wait, wait, let me guess. Let me guess. His name was uh, Logan. Nope. Travis. Nope. If you tell me his name is Chad, then Jen, we're going to have problems. <laughs> it's not. Then I'm going to understand exactly guess. what's going on with life right now. Huh? You'll, you'll never guess. It was in kindergarten, and I remember this like so clearly. His like it was yesterday. Jeffrey. Thor. What? Yeah, he had the coolest name. You were in love with the superhero, so cool. Jen? Totally, He's yeah. He's carried a hammer around with him everywhere? And he was Blasian. So he was half black and half Asian. Oh, wow. And he had That's green cool eyes. Yeah, and he had green eyes. But he had like, you know, the most beautiful colored skin and, you know, this great hair. And his name was Thor. And he would just smile at me and I would smile at him. I was just like, oh my gosh. Oh my. When you're so, used to meet in places, did he, he, did he like, he seems like the type of person that if you met him at like the, the restaurant, he wouldn't just like walk up from the table. He'd like fall down from a tree. <laughs> yeah. He's like one of those, but he's yeah. like, what's up? <laughs> yeah. It was at Pleasantville Elementary School and I was in kindergarten. It was the eighties. So, you know, I don't even remember his last name or anything else about. His situation. real name was Thor? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. His parents yeah. must've been total nerds. And he was he was very popular too. All the little girls liked him. Really, he wasn't the only one. Yeah. No, I mean, if you got a name like Thor, I can't imagine why. So what happened cutie. with that? I don't know. You know, really? uh, I don't know his last name. Otherwise, I'd try to look him up. Yeah. What happened to him? Yeah, that's yeah. how every story happens when you're young. You're just I don't know what happened. It basically <laughs> just like moved on with my life. There's like no no dramatic conclusion. You're just like yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't I when I think back. Living. When I think back about my life, even when in my 20s, I'm like, I have no idea who that is, you know? Who is that person? I know. It's, when it, I look at pictures of myself, I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> it just to, cringe. To, to think that you were the one looking through your eyes when you were 15, mm-hmm. you know? And the fact that, you know, we are where we're at now. I'm in my 30s and I'm just thinking like, wow, I've been alive that long. Mm-hmm. It's crazy to think that you just your heart hasn't stopped beating since you've been born. Yeah, that's you know? weird. Like no matter what happens. that's the 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day and that and people are like, oh, the universe is, is the universe loving? Absolutely. Because it could so easily not happen. Mm-hmm. That heart just chooses to be for you every single day, regardless of what you think about life or how much you hate life or how much you hate yourself. Your heart still beats every single mm-hmm. day for you. So if you ever question yeah. whether or not they're, the universe is loving, there you go, right there. There you go. Yeah. You the human body is incredible. Things. It's incredible the things that it does. Yeah. Just- to keep us alive. Okay, I lost track here, Jen. Did you do the last quote or I did? I don't know. I feel know. like I did. But I can do another one if you want. No, I have one. Um, okay. And it's a, this is also another thin crust quote, <laughs> but I really like this. So uh, you're under no obligation to be the same person you were five minutes ago. So this kind of goes along with what we were talking about, right? Is people change and you can change and it's okay to change and you're not obligated to be that person that you were. I love how he phrases that, obligated, because that's assuming mm-hmm. that most people feel obligated to keep that sort of archive of who they are close by. Mm-hmm. People feel like they have to be everything that they've experienced in the past, Yep. right? And they can conceptually do that, but 
I can't remember lots of things that happened when I was young and maybe I'm not supposed to. Right. You know, like we just move and change, but he's speaking to people that maybe something happened in their past that was traumatic and maybe something happened in their past that for whatever reason they can't get over. You don't have to hold on to those things. No. And by holding on to them, you have to also acknowledge that it's a choice. You're choosing to over-identify who you are now, which can be a completely different person to a past that represents a part of you that's not even here anymore. This speaks a lot about, you know, living in the present too. As, you know, we all make mistakes and, you know, you're not, you're not your mistakes and you're not who you were. You're, you're not your past. Those may have been decisions that you made, mistakes that you made, but that's not really who you are. And if you don't want to be that person, you don't have to be. Yeah. You can be somebody completely different. And recreating yourself every single moment. I think yeah. Alan Watts actually talked about it in some of his books. Like the present moment occurs within less than a split second, right? That is how fleeting the present moment is. So the second you talk about the present moment that you're in, it's already becoming another present moment. So you're in never essentially capturing who you really are by thinking about it. The only way to really, really capture the presence of life is to just move with it. It's a movement. It's not a concept. It's not anything that you can understand. After speaking these words that I'm speaking right now, they've already become the past. They've already become somebody that I'm not anymore. Mm-hmm. And they teach us a lot in Buddhism. When you breathe in, you're, you're breathing in the life and the person that you are in this moment. And when you exhale, you're letting go of who you used to be, right? So if you get into this, this is a practice that I kind of cultivated over time for a long time, which is when you breathe in, you're breathing in who you are in the moment. And when you exhale, you're letting go of who you were in that moment. So every single moment of every single day, you're recreating a new aspect of who you are. And you're never the same, right? You're never the same. You're always changing. That was a good one. Yeah, it's a good one. Even it was short, but it was, it was. Yeah. That was, Mm -hmm. it kicks you in the nuts and they're just the right way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. The universe gave you a deal on some, the universe had like a three for one deal on pizza for you today, Jen, (laughs) on spiritual pizza. (laughs) For sure. For sure. So the next one that I have is life and change. And here we go. It says, to put this more plainly, the desire for security and the feeling of insecurity are the same thing. To hold your breath is to lose your breath. A society based on the quest for security is nothing but a breath retention contest in which everyone is at tout as a drum and as purple as a beat. This is speaking to exactly what we're talking about, life being change. The more we try and grasp at life, the more dull and rigid we become. Mm-hmm. Because when we hold so firmly onto life, we suck the very life and the beauty out of it. Our bodies are a perfect example of this change. It's so crazy how much our bodies can teach us and we don't even realize it. In order to keep the body alive, it needs to move. It needs to, mm-hmm. to constantly be moving. Yeah. So our, it's like our body calls for us to participate with nature and, and it's sort of requirement for us to get exercise and to move and to feed ourselves. It, it is a movement. It isn't, life is, is a movement. It's not something that we can grasp onto in hopes that we can capture it. Anxiety is a perfect example of this. Anxious people hold their breath, mm-hmm. all the body loses oxygen and then somehow uh, eventually we invoke some sort of panic attack. Whenever we try and grasp hold on to something too tightly, we end up interrupting the flow. Like if you focus too much on your breathing, you'll start maybe breathing out of the chest instead of from the stomach. You're not allowing the natural processes of life to move through you. And when you grab hold of these things that are already being compassionately moderated by nature, you fuck it up. And in the same way, creatively. I think about this just kind of from an artist's perspective because I've gone through this before. When we force anything creatively, we eclipse our ability to be creative. I think about artists, like you probably have an artist that you really like that has 
their first album was fucking amazing. And the time in which they created the first album, they were living like regular human beings. The struggle was real for them. They were trying to get by. They were hoping to make it. And a lot of the music that they would create came from the depths of their humanness. Mm -hmm. And then when they become famous, say they finally get at it. They get all of this money. They get all of this recognition and all of this fame. Somehow they lose track of the depths of the experience from which they used to create from. And there's this pressure to create something fucking good, right? Mm -hmm. There's this pressure like, oh, you need to make an album that was just as good as the first one. And at the same time, they're touring nonstop. They're no longer living the struggle in the way that they used to. They're living the life of a famous person. They're always yeah. touring. They're on a tour bus. Everything involves them being praised for something. And it's no surprise to me as an artist that their second album sucks ass. The struggle's no longer real. It tends to lack substance. You notice like with uh, especially pop artists, they're, you know, maybe their first album's really good and then the second album or the third album is about touring or it's about the life in which they yeah. they live that involves mm -hmm. fame. Yeah. Like they're talking about all the money that they have. They're talking about all the expensive stuff and it just loses that substance because it's not coming from that space of creativity. It's coming from a place of imitation and we can never be creative if we're trying to imitate life. So in accepting change involves trust in a loving moon. In a, I'm blowing my own mind right now, Jen. <laughs> accepting change involves trust in a loving universe to move you forward. It is trusting your body, your life, and love to move you in the right direction, right? That is what it means to embrace change, is to trust that your body and the love inside of you is going to move you to the right place. You just have to collaborate with that and move with that. And you may get hurt every once in a while. You may get your ass kicked. You may get your heart broken. You may lose your job, but you never want to lose that trust for life because at the very core of those things, there is a lesson to learn mm -hmm. from suffering and from goodness. So I think as long as you keep that perspective, you can naturally just sort of flow and move with life and not let it beat you down. So my, uh, we're getting toward the end. So I, I wanted to make sure I got this one in there because this okay. is one of my favorite ones. So this one's about psychedelics. Ooh. Yeah, I know. Of course. Relevant. Good old Ellen. Mm -hmm. Good old Ellen and the perennial philosophy. That's right. If you get the message, hang up the phone. For psychedelic drugs are simply instruments, like microscopes, telescopes, and telephones. The biologist does not sit with eyes permanently glued to the microscope. He goes away and works on what he has seen. Some people sure do psychedelics for fun, but you never really do psychedelics for fun. There's always... Internal, internal work that is happening and it's what you take away from the experience and how you integrate that experience into your life. Right. So uh, the takeaway, right? And I, I see this, I've seen this happen with lots of people in the past. It's a profound experience. You can learn so much from it, but it's not meant to be one of those things, or at least maybe not for everybody to just do for the rest of your life. I know some people that extracted the wisdom that they needed to get from it and that was it. And they just took it one time. It's and an instrument whatever your for journey, healing. Yeah. And it's an instrument for healing. Mm -hmm. And just like spirit, and Alan Watts talks a lot about this too, spirituality isn't something that you just need to carry around with you like you would some sort of Bible. It's like mm -hmm. you extract the wisdom from these sort of sacred teachings of the Tao or Zen. And it isn't so much that you're applying it to your life. You're awakening to something that naturally occurs with inside of you. And instead of having to practice some form of spirituality, you just naturally become spiritual. The very essence of who you are and how you collaborate with life is spiritual. Mm -hmm. You know, like I think of like a, a doctor. What is a doctor's profession is to, at the very core, I mean, we're not talking about Western medicine. A doctor's role is to heal you mm -hmm. so that you don't have to keep coming back to the doctor. Right. But Western medicine, it's, it, it's, it's 
crafted in such a way that continuously keeps you coming back to the doctor. That is what you don't want in spirituality. You don't want to continuously keep coming back to spirituality because that shows in a lot of ways that you missed the point. You're maybe putting band-aids over bullet wounds, but if you really, really get true spirituality, Zen or Tao or Buddhism or Hinduism, you'll extract the sort of remembrance of your own sort of divinity, and then you'll go on living your life. I mean, yes, we're talking about it right now. This is something that is a practice for us, but I'm Mm -hmm. talking about in terms of like dogmatic religions like Christianity that keep you codependent and keep you dependent on them for your salvation. At some point, you have to grab the bull by the horns and you have to take accountability of your own spirituality and not Mm -hmm. somebody else's experience because that's kind of what the Bible consists of is other people's experiences, other people's perspectives. To take their perspective as your own and it not be within your own experience seems kind of crazy in a lot of ways because we the only way that we learn is through our own experience with life. So that's the thing where the maybe Christian church gets it wrong is that we're somehow being called to identify with an experience that has never happened to us before. So I think the real point is to wake awaken to your own spirituality, create your own Bible in your heart through the way in which you live and collaborate with others. Be your own Jesus, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, you can't learn from other people's experiences. You have to have them on your own. And, yeah. you know, with any any medicine, like not just psychedelics or plant medicine, right? With any medicine, it can only do so much. Like it's not going to do all of the work for you. The real work happens after the experience. Yeah, you get um, some level of enlightenment and connection, but it's what you do with that information after the experience is over is really where the power of psychedelics come in, in my opinion. You you can't use it as a crutch. The pandemic is a perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, we get so involved with the media sort of interpretation of how to go through this pandemic, which is that you need to get vaccinated. And if you choose to do that, that's fine. Or if you choose not to, that's fine. But the, the, they never in the conversation talk about all the ways in which you should be actually healthy. Yeah, You know, healthy behaviors, exercise, good diet, all of these mm-hmm. things contribute to whether or not you could battle this shit. Exactly. You know, but that's never mentioned. <laughs> Let's not no, talk it's about not, that. It's, it's, yeah. it's not mentioned. And you know, I'm not one of those people that really gets involved in that conversation. I'll never, ever tell somebody what they should or shouldn't do with their life. I feel like it's completely up to them. But one thing that I did notice in terms of, you know, the information that's being circulated is that the, the conversation is never about how you take care of yourself. You know, it's never about what you can do in order to help build your immune system. It's always mm-hmm. about like, you know, rely on pharmaceuticals. It's a conversation that we've all been so used to throughout the years, which is, you know, you rely on pharmaceuticals, you rely on painkillers, you rely on SSRI antidepressants, you rely on all this shit. Meanwhile, you have the ability and the power to pull yourself out of these things naturally through self-inquiry and being right. radically honest with yourself about where you're at in your journey. And I know, I understand that that's hard for some. You have to have a lot of courage and it is a practice. But you never have to rely on other people for your happiness or your health. People can help, but you're Every, responsible. Yeah, everything you need is already inside of you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I'm going to end it with one more quote, Jen. This is the last quote. I think this will kind of sum up good old Alan. I hope we pay tribute to him. Alan, brother, if you're in this guy and you're watching, make sure you show up. At the end of my life, I'll be waiting. I'll be waiting. <laughs> the Golden Gate's for you. Love you, Dan. With psychedelic Jesus. Psychedelic Jesus, exactly. Okay, so this one is the category of this one was the way of Zen. And Alan Watts says, how does one bring oneself into accord with it? With it meaning the Tao. If you try to accord with it, you will get away from it. For to imagine there is a you separate from life, which is somehow has to accord with life, is to fall straight into the trap. If you try to find the Tao, 
you are at once presupposing a difference between yourself and the Tao. I'm going to read it one more time because this one's this one was really complex. How does one bring oneself into accord with the Tao? If you try to accord with it, you will get away from it. For to imagine there is a you separate from life, which somehow has accord with life, is to fall straight into the trap. If you try to find the Tao, you are at once presupposing a difference between yourself and the Tao. So this is, the Tao in Zen speaks to the art of not doing. And a lot of people get this confused. They think, okay, well, if you're not doing, then you're doing nothing. If you're not doing anything, then you're just sitting down on a bed, not moving, staring at the ceiling. That's not what Zen is about. In Chinese, the word for nature is called ziran, which means self-so or self of itself. Ziran doesn't mean green pastures over yonder. This is, ziran is basically in Zen what they call nature. And they, they're, they're talking about the art of not doing by integrating more with nature. They're not talking about, like it says, green pastures over yonder. There's no word to distinguish us and nature in Chinese. It means a spontaneous process that happens in and of itself. When in Zen they talk about not doing, this is what they mean. It means a spontaneous process that happens in and of itself. And according to Lao Tzu, you live in harmony with the Tao by doing nothing at all. But as Alan Watts explains, doing nothing at all cannot be achieved by, I'm quoting this, deliberate imitation in which you suppose you know the right way to act. It also, it's not possible through deliberate relaxation where you relax your mind and try not to control yourself and think whatever the hell you want. So you can't do it by forcing yourself to relax and you can't engage with the Tao by forcing your will onto it. There is no way, there's no method, no technique which you or I can use to come in accord with the Tao, the way of nature, because every how, every method implies a goal. So the only way to accord with the way of nature is Wu Wei. That's what they call it. It is called non-striving, non-doing, or actionless action. And to summarize all of this, basically what I'm trying to say, guys, the basis of Wu Wei is to engage fully in everything you do for nothing other than its own sake, without oh. doing it to try and achieve some result, outcome, or other thing from doing it. I needed that because I was lost in the sauce on that one. I needed that wrap up. Yeah, because that was too the, deep for me. This is this this is Tao, Jen. You can't yeah. you can't get at it by trying to understand it. You can't get at it by trying to do it. And I think uh, that that sort of reduces you down to okay. Well, now you're just here. And of course, one could say, okay, well, I still have to think in order to pick something up. But there's a sort of a natural order that happens with, with your body. You can do all of these things and be completely present in doing them without having to think too much about it. Just being more integrated with nature. Right. All right. Yeah. I'm gonna. So that was deep. I just have, I'm going to do one last one that's not deep. This is just, okay. all right. Life is not a problem to be solved, but an experience to be had. Thank you, Alan. I love that one. That's a good one. That's like uh, the difference between experience and an intellectual understanding of experience. It's not mm -hmm. something to be understood because we can spend so much time trying to understand things that we completely miss. The experience. Completely miss life. We mm -hmm. completely miss the experience. It's all about cool. the journey, not the destination. Exactly. Because if you were to try and define the destination, what does that even look like? Who knows? You know? Yeah. Like if we, we, we idealize and romanticize what this destination is. And it then is, 30 years yeah. into the future, we're like, okay, the destination isn't here yet. It's a moving target. It? Yeah. It's a moving target. You know? It's, uh, I think I remember uh, Ram Das talking about this uh, a little while ago. And he's like, you know what? In life, life is like a dance. Sometimes you slow dance with a partner. Sometimes you step on people's toes. Sometimes you're headbanging and you're moshing and you're knocking people down, right? And sometimes that little miss 
gets on top of your feet while you're dancing because she doesn't know how to dance very well. Oh. It doesn't really matter how you dance. What matters is that you're dancing. Right? I love it. Yeah. Good old Ram Das. Good old Ram Das. Yeah. Um, rest in peace, brother. Brother Alan Watts, as well as definitely uh, Brother Ram Das as well. This was good. This was good. Glad we brought these quotes in, into the frame. This is always good stuff. I can feel Alan's presence here. Yeah. Which is just saying. It's just about the journey. It's about being present and uh, just showing up for life and having fun with it. You know, have a drink or two. Have a smoke. Good old Alan Watts does it. Don't, definitely don't cheat on your partner, though. No. You know, you don't want to do that. Of course, we're acknowledging that we're all imperfect, but try the best that you can to just have a good time. Not take things so seriously because, you know what? Life isn't serious. Life is fun. So anyways, thank you guys for tuning in to Vinyl Podcast. Like and subscribe. If you guys are on YouTube, if you go into the description of this uh, episode, you can find our YouTube. If you're somebody that likes to watch long-form podcasts, you can like and subscribe, seeing me and, me and Jen talking to each other, giving each other crazy looks. And uh, you could also follow us on uh, Instagram where we post some clips and uh, posts and things like that. You could also reach out to us at uh, divine-nobodies.com. Send us an email. Let us know how we're doing. And uh, also, if you're on Apple Podcasts, send us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback, what you guys think. If you guys are on IG, want us to cover a topic, let us know. We'll cover it. Right? All right. All right. It's been, it's been amazing. Everybody stay, stay warm. Stay warm out there while it's raining down here in the West. We'll talk to you soon. Namaste, friends. Namaste.